Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Now, uh, if you are a regular listener of the Vintage Podcast, uh, you will know that we are in the middle of a two-parter, an Icelandic special double bill um, all about Icelandic literature and the way it has grown and changed and interacted with the outside world over the centuries. Over this two-parter special we are meeting with authors, booksellers and literary experts to talk about the history of Icelandic literature and the future where it might be going. So last episode we talked about the sagas, uh, the landscape of Iceland and how it's permeated the kind of Icelandic imagination and the history behind the bookish legacy Iceland has. This episode we're going to hear a little bit more about the future. First we're speaking to prolific crime writer Ragnar Jonasson on his hesitations about the reduction of the Icelandic language as a priority and the effects that tourism might be having on literature. I asked Ragnar if he ever wondered about the future of Icelandic books written originally in Icelandic. Yes, um, yeah, every day. It, yeah. Uh, I, have, I fear that, the, uh, uh, that kids are reading less and less and even adults are reading always a little bit less every year. Icelanders are buying fewer books than before. Uh, I don't know exactly what the reason is. I think the access to other kind of entertainment is is vast, and for kids, I think worrying fact is the access to uh, access to material is in English is so it's so, so easy. And so yeah, big. it's so tempting. You know, yeah. so so much to choose from, and uh, you know, with we have a lot of tourists in Iceland as well, so that uh, which is a great thing, uh, of course. But it also has the effect, you know, impact that. Businesses try to cater to tourists, and we have more, you know, more English out there everywhere. You know, if you walk around downtown Reykjavik, you will notice a lot of stuff is in English rather than Icelandic. Yeah. Which maybe makes it for a less authentic experience for the tourists, but it's for practical reasons. Yeah. But uh, again, it sort of all all this sort of undermines undermines the language. Next, I wanted to hear from Shun, um, the Icelandic writer who's recently written a book called Moonstone, which I absolutely loved. I wanted to hear from him what it was like growing up discovering Icelandic writing versus discovering uh, translated writing and, and how the British experience permeated what he read as a child. It was really interesting. Have a listen. We all start, of course, uh, reading in Icelandic. We, mm-hmm. that's, that's the language we learn in school and, 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 and we speak and write here mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the first books I read were in Icelandic, mm-hmm. uh, mostly children's books, but a lot of those children's books were uh, translated fiction mm-hmm. from abroad. Uh, m- many of the books were really bad literature, you know. Uh, they were like boy detective novels yeah. oh, from the United the States. Boy yes, the, yeah. the Hardy Boys from the United States and uh, and Nancy Drew also yes. from over there mm-hmm. and. Uh, from uh, from uh, the UK, we had uh, Enid Blyton, mm. which was extremely popular here. Yeah. She was one of the most popular and big, biggest selling authors in Iceland uh, when I was growing up. So we started reading her adventure books, and then uh, we had Famous Five and Famous Four, and all of those uh, yeah. all of those series she wrote. She was extremely popular, yeah. and she really. Uh, showed us uh, that kids could have uh, very different lives from ours. Uh, one of the things we all were fascinated by was the endless picnicking. <laughs> yeah, they were like, Be- why are there so many picnics? Because we don't have picnics in Iceland, <laughs> you know. And uh, the kids were always there somewhere out in nature. 
having a ham and uh, tinned ham, mm -hmm. you know, which spam. was spam, which yeah. was, you know, for us, like, you know, for us, it was like a, uh, <laughs> an incredible foreign delicacy, yeah. you know, <clears throat> so they were always having this, this tinned ham, the spam, yeah. and, and then they had like, um, they had like tinned uh, fruit. Yeah. And, it's very uh, like wartime. Yes, kind of very much, you know. And we were <laughs> like, oh, what, a, what, a, what a wonderful life they're having there, you know. And then, of course, all the adventures, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the mysteries. Yeah. But uh, as a young reader, I, uh, uh, just because I was a reading kid and I was constantly reading and I always mm -hmm. had to have something to read, um, uh, I started reading uh, Icelandic folk stories. Yeah. I found them uh, uh, in the home of my grandmother, where I was living with my mother at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became uh, completely uh, besotted by the strange world of the Icelandic folk stories. Yeah. And uh, my grandmother had them in uh, an academic edition, six leather-bound volumes, mm -hmm. you know, so it was uh, wow. big, uh, beautiful, mysterious books because they had like beautiful lettering, you know, no illustrations, but, you know, beautiful uh, lettering and, uh, and, and, and beautiful design. And there I read everything about uh, the Icelandic uh, living dead, mm. the hidden people living in the rocks, uh, the giantesses yeah. of the mountains who are cannibals, but also like to have their ways with man. You know, all sorts <laughs> of very strange things for a young kid to read. Yeah. And I think this, this um, was uh, something that had a very deep impact on me. And then, of course, I was a normal kid, you know, so I was listening to music. David Bowie played a big role. And he was the one that pushed me towards learn, learning English. Oh, really? It was yeah. David Bowie yeah. who got you there? We, we started uh, uh, learning English uh, at 10 in my class, mm -hmm. but it was an experiment. Usually kids started learning at 12. Oh, okay. We learned Danish yeah. at 10, started learning Danish at 10 oh, because of our yeah, because of the ties with, uh, mm -hmm. with Denmark. And then at 12, most kids started learning English. But in my class, they were doing like uh, some tests, you know, so mm -hmm. we, we, we started learning English at 10. And then when I became a, a, a David Bowie fan, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I of course had to understand the lyrics. Mm -hmm. I had to uh, understand the interviews, you know, I started hunting down every interview I, yeah. I could find like in the music press mm -hmm. that was brought over here. And uh, yeah, so that pushed me towards learning English. And David Bowie, the great educator he was, he also pushed me to towards uh, English uh, uh, books in English. J.G. Ballard, uh, William S. Burroughs, uh, uh, George Orwell. You know, he, he he gave you like this reading list along along uh, alongside the music. I also spoke to Beata, a wonderful Icelandic bookseller, um, and I wanted to ask her what really makes Icelandic books Icelandic? What's the feel of them for her? How do they feel different uh, to a translated book? I think it's the same with like books in any language. It's just the way of speaking. Like when it gets like when books get translated, sometimes they lose this. It's like the phrases, the way of speaking, just like and the things that happen, like how people react to things. Like you can just see, yeah, this is a story about an Icelandic person. Yeah. It's a typical Icelandic person. Yeah. It's like when that. you read a book after an Icelandic author about Icelandic people, you can so often go, yeah, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know that guy. It's like, <laughs> yeah, like, like I've met him. This time. I know his yes. name. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you must have read the sagas at school. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, in some ways they m- might have been the same as like we read medieval literature yeah. as children and we were like, oh, this is so boring. But do you think they're still relevant? Do you think people um, still talk about them or reference yeah. them? Mm, yeah, like uh, we are actually very good at that. And like um, we reference them, we um, read them, yeah, we still read them in school. Uh, I was a bit of a weirdo, like I don't, I found them boring when I saw them in school, but mm. I think it's because uh, when I was a kid, I read them all at my grandma's house. Yeah. So it was like, I've been through this. It's very hard. You're like, it's like old, yeah, it's mm. old time Icelandic. I've already went through this. It was interesting mm. then, but then it's like, <laughs> yeah. do I have to do this again? Yeah. <laughs> but I guess it does kind of yeah. permeate into the but, rest But um, Icelandic schools, like, especially um, lately, I feel like they've been getting so good at, like with the sires and the stuff, they are also teaching uh, newer books. Yes. Like fresh yeah. books with like, happen more yeah. now, you know, yeah, something the kids can more maybe relate stuff. to more, yeah. which is very important. I also wanted to hear a little bit about what it was like to become a writer in Iceland. So I spoke to Christine Eriksdottir about the way access to writing has changed and her experience um, becoming a writer in Iceland and also her experience being translated, uh, what that was like, especially um, she had some really interesting things to say about negotiating um, the title of a book and also the way voices uh, can permeate a translation. When I was starting to uh, publish, we didn't actually have a programme for writing at the university. Really? No. So mm. uh, I actually went to the Art Academy to mm. study visual arts. Mm. Um, and I, I was very envious of, of uh, for example, uh, my Danish friends who could go to the Danish writer school or, yeah. or you know, and because I can't, you know, it's mm. like I thought about it a lot when I was in my uh, early 20s, if I could actually just go to a, uh, an English speaking or, a, or a, you know, some, yeah. some other language um, to study uh, writing and, and it just seemed, it just felt very impossible yeah. because... Because then I suppose then you'd end I, up making all your art, your, all your literature in in English maybe instead yeah. of Icelandic and I, I've been thinking about this like it's actually very rare that that people speak that, that they write in in their second languages yeah you know I think I mean I know there's like I I, I know like I, I can think of two mm. you know on top of my head from Iceland that actually yeah. write in, in different languages yeah because I suppose to, to write in a language you have to know it so intrinsically yeah <laughs> it must be so much part of your experience you have a book coming out in English tell me about that yeah it's it's my uh, last novel yeah that is uh, going to be published in uh, in the States mm-hmm. by uh, Amazon Crossing mm-hmm. um, it's called uh, A Fist or a Heart okay yeah yeah uh, it's the English title. The Icelandic title was untranslatable. Uh, what was the Icelandic title? Uh, okay. And uh, it's yeah, it's an, it's an Icelandic uh, female name that doesn't really translate as a name. Oh really? So it's the uh, yeah, it's it it was a little bit tricky. Uh, yeah. So we found a new English title. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah, and it's coming out in um, in uh, September of uh, of uh, two thousand nineteen. Okay. And uh, so I've been uh, I've been reading. I've been reading through the translations of that book. Is it strange to see your book? Did you ever, were you tempted, because your English is so amazing, did, were you tempted to translate it yourself? No, 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 I have a wonderful translator, her name is uh, Larissa Kaiser, mm-hmm. and she, um, yeah, she's, uh, she's wonderful, and, yeah. and I also have a wonderful Danish translator called Kim Lembach, mm-hmm. and uh, I've translated myself, 
and uh, and my mother translated, mm-hmm. like I said, uh, from Russian, and I just realized this kind of interesting thing, and it's that um, when you have a translation, and this is not something that you notice when you are reading a translation, um, I think, but there's the writer's voice is there, mm. and the translator translator's voice also enters the the book. Yeah, it's there in um, the background. But I don't think you can really tell unless it's your own. I've never noticed yeah. this before because it's like I just realized it after a bit. Like, oh yeah, it's like it's like uh, there's a bit of her in there it's too. It's like inviting a third person. It's yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's it's really fascinating, and I think it's uh, and it, it has I I I, I, I t- I'm not talking about the quality of the translation because mm-hmm. I think it's just always, and what I actually realized uh, when I was. Uh, going through these uh, uh, translations, w- which are really well done, is that uh, when I read Dostoevsky mm. or Bulgakov, I always hear my mother's voice. Really? Yeah. Just and, and it's, but you, but you, is it just the way she phrases stuff? And yeah. I think it's just because I know her voice so well. Like, yeah. Uh, it might. Yeah. It's like this. I mean, I've been listening to it since yeah. I was in her womb, you know, so it's like this voice that I just yeah. am so familiar with. And I, yeah, and I just, I kind of like tried, <laughs> started reading a little bit just to check out and I was like, yeah, I, I like, it's Dostoevsky, her. of course, but she's also there. That's so... And it, I just thought it was like an interesting uh, thought and also because uh, uh, I think it can, in some on some very sort of subconscious level, it can benefit the work mm. yeah Fascinating. and it also means I guess that anyone who's read Dostoevsky <laughs> I can't say um, anyone who's read Dostoevsky in Icelandic will have a bit of your mother's voice yeah, as well and they won't, might not know it but yeah. they will heard your mum yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah because they don't know it because you don't hear it unless you yeah, unless you've read both, or you, yeah. Yeah, unless you are or you know familiar with, with... Yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. This idea of being able to subconsciously hear um, voices behind voices when it comes to translation is, is also true, I think, of Reykjavik in general. There's a sense uh, that some amazing people have made their footprint uh, on the city that you might not immediately know from the outset, uh, but when you hear about the stories, it becomes clear that so many amazing people are behind the kind of vibe and spirit of Reykjavik. Shown told me about a legendary bookseller who brought literature into Reykjavik and simultaneously helped send Icelandic voices out into the world. Reykjavik has- has a long, uh, long history of good English bookstores. Mm. Uh, there was a man who lived here, uh, Snæbjörn Jónsson, the bookseller. He was married to an uh, English woman, and he opened uh, uh, opened uh, an English bookshop here in the center, very close to where we are now. Probably, I would think probably in uh, just before the war, just before the Great War, probably 19, 11, 12. Yeah. And he kept that uh, store open uh, until well uh, after the Second World War. So we've always had a good access to uh, to English yeah. English uh, books and bo- books in English and, and world literature translated into English. Yes. that was very important for me when I was coming into being as author. 
And it's, it's kind of nice that it's kind of, you know, one person or one moment that can bring, that can change the course of that relationship, I suppose. Yes. And like one bookseller. Yes, in, yeah. in a small, small mm. place like uh, Reykjavik, you know, yeah. it only took one man like yeah. him. And he was like the, he was the, he was the local agent mm-hmm. for, uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, publishers in the UK. So he uh, was the... He was, he was the go-between. He was the go-between. And I think it was because of him that uh, W. H. Orton came here, and and with Louis McNeese in the first yeah. uh, in the first uh, in the first visit here. I think yeah. it was because of a relationship between uh, Snyder Jonsson and no, their publisher in in in, in, in yeah. London. You know. Yeah. So he's kind of like bringing bringing literature into Iceland, but also farming it out again. You know, it's kind of a funnel. Yeah. At the <laughs> yeah, time, of great. course, there was very little uh, little local literature here. Mm. Halter Laxness mm. had uh, just uh, come into being and was coming into being as a, as a young, uh, arrogant uh, author. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and there was a there was a small uh, small um, literature scene here in in, in Reykjavik. Uh, after the after the first world war and of course a bookstore like that uh, supported port supported mm-hmm. that scene but at the time very few icelandic authors were published abroad apart from those who wrote in danish right there yeah. was a group of icelandic authors living in copenhagen mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, some of them like gunnar gunnarsson was published all over the world mm-hmm. and uh, johan sigurjonsson he was a playwright and uh, one of his films well, one of his plays was made into a film mm-hmm. by Viktor Sjöström and went all over the world. So there was this small group of Icelandic authors in Copenhagen yeah. who were having like an international breakthrough, but they yeah. wrote in Danish. And the big decision that Halter Laxness made mm. was to write in Icelandic and take his chance as an yeah. Icelandic so author. That's kind of a political in, decision in as well. As, it was a political know. decision and, mm. you know, it was... Uh, uh, an incredibly fateful uh, decision for Icelandic literature and mm. Icelandic culture in general. Yeah. So the momentum and legacy of those people who brought Icelandic voices forward uh, continues. Here's Ragnar on the ways that Icelandic literature is continuing and the ways that stories are being supported. But there are some things that are being done. Uh, the government is, is introducing a subsidy to uh, publishers so a quarter of uh, or 25% of all costs of producing a book in Icelandic will be paid by the government now. Oh, wow. So, Is that recently? Yeah, it's yeah, just, you know, as of next year, I think. Okay. And the publishers I've spoken to say this may be just a game changer they needed to you know, make sure publishers just keep in, stay in business and can mm-hmm. keep doing what they're doing so well. Uh, personally, uh, we, I, I, with my friend Ursa Sigurðardóttir, we set up a... Uh, a competition for new crime writers, so we sort of give away a little bit of money and business, uh, no, and a publishing deal and an agent deal for uh, for the next big crime writer in Iceland. And we did that last year. We had a lot of manuscripts, and we found uh, a brilliant story and a great serving winner. And uh, we're doing it again this year. And you know, the the criteria is you need to just write in Icelandic and send it to us. So, uh, so you know, and the book was published, and we're very happy about that. We're doing our little, our bit, and uh, passing the buck on, kind of. Yeah, in a way, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, what I've noticed as well is, which you know, with regards to the Icelandic language, is that the uh, 
the music that you know kids and young young people are listening to in Iceland now, Icelandic music, uh, like rap and hip hop, is very very popular. And the young musicians who are doing this, maybe kids like 20 year old or even younger, they're all writing lyrics in Icelandic. Oh, wow. Which is yeah. really, you know, brilliant. Uh, That's like poetry, really. Yeah, yeah, it's a modern it's type of poetry. Kind of yeah, and very accessible, and you know, it, you know, so people are singing along in Icelandic. Mm. So, although, you know, so there's some hope. Yeah, definitely. I thought it'd be lovely to end the podcast with a last word from Sean. Uh, he had some amazing things to say about the bright future of Icelandic voices uh, and the kind of spirit of hope and self-publishing uh, that has permeated his life and, and the kind of general sense of, of the literature community. Here's a little bit about how he got started writing and I think it gives a lovely little window uh, into the real spirit behind the voices of Reykjavik and what we can expect in the future. I've been uh, involved in uh, literature since I was 15. Mm-hmm. I published my first book the summer I turned 16. Wow. And uh, quite early on, I must say, uh, uh, I was uh, quite well received. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one uh, put a question mark to the fact that this uh, 16-year-old kid was uh, going around with uh, his sack full of, like, uh, <laughs> books yeah. of poetry or bringing them to the bookstores like you know distributing them and uh, yeah. selling them on the bus or whatever you know he sold them on the bus yeah 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 <laughs> you just go you just like kind of go up to people like, i'm a poet would you like my collection yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know the the, the route uh, between the center of Reykjavik and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, the suburbs where mm. I lived, Breithalt, mm. it was 20 minutes, you know, so I had plenty of time yeah. winning people <laughs> over, you know, I even sat down by people and That's read amazing. two or three poems, you know, and said, so would you like to buy it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I, in general, I was so well received, and mm. I think that is the general atmosphere here, that we know that uh, literature is born of the desire to, to create it and mm. take part in it, mm. and you never know. Uh, where uh, uh, where from the next uh, writer is going to come, you know. It might be a, a teenage uh, g- girl from uh, um, a small uh, fishing village up yeah. in the west. We don't know. It might be a 16-year-old on the bus. Or, or the 16-year-old uh, strange guys mm. on the bus, you know. Yeah. So so you never know. And, and so, so it's, I, I, I would say it's very welcoming. Mm. Everybody is welcome to try. Mm. You know, publish your book of poetry. And self-publishing here is in a completely different uh, uh, place than in, 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 in other countries. Really? Uh, most of us start as self-published poets. Yeah. Halter Laxness started as a self-published writer. Really? Yeah. yeah. And we always say if it was good enough for him, you know, then it must be good enough for us yeah. and the rest of you, you know? Yeah. So self-publishing has, has always been here... Uh, the platform where new uh, talent uh, uh, steps forward. Mm-hmm. So, for example, here in the bookstores, uh, there is always a, a table with, uh, you know, the latest in poetry, and I would say 70% of the books on that table are self-published. Really? And uh, that is where I go to look for uh, the new voices, yeah. you know, and, uh, and I buy a few of them, you know, and then I just say, yeah. you know, okay, there's something going on here. Yeah, oh, not nice. bad. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is a name yeah. to follow. But I like that sense of independence, you know, that almost like I will, you know, <laughs> screw what everyone else is doing, I'm going to publish my, you know. And Absolutely. I think, do you think that also comes from it, and maybe I'm projecting, but being a kind of an island of all of itself and, and kind of like, you know, having that quite self-contained sense of 
belonging? Uh, I think it no. I think it has more to do with uh, with recognizing that the spirit of poetry, you know, uh, uh, can uh, awaken in every mm. person, and that person just has to follow that calling. You know, yes. we we are quite romantic when it comes to com comes to literature. Yeah. So we believe it is a it's a God-given right. It's a birthright. Mm. To to uh, to to write poetry, mm -hmm. if if you have it in in you, you don't need license from a, from anyone. Yeah. You know the, li the the license comes from poetry that. itself. You yeah. know, there's, there's it's a, chosen there's a, you, so yeah, you have to do you it. You to. know, yeah. There's um, um a word in Icelandic that like, means like you have a book in your stomach. Is it a, or it's a phrase? Is it a phrase? Yeah. 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 Everybody's uh, heavily pregnant <laughs> here with, uh, with, like, uh, with uh, it's just the pain of birth. With, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Uh, if you haven't listened to all our Icelandic episodes, the links are in the show notes. There are some fascinating insights and lovely little moments. Uh, in those episodes so I do encourage you to go back and listen to those if you haven't already if you're interested in reading some Icelandic literature after listening to this I would really recommend you dipping into some laxness um, we've got Independent People The Atom Station and Fish Can Sing which are all vintage red spine classics uh, so do take a look at those I'll leave the links in the show notes as well thank you so much to Wow Air for partnering with us for these Icelandic episodes it's been great don't forget to follow us on social media at Vintage Books I've been Lena Norms and until next time Thank you.